Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And you are having trouble remembering to pull your microphone to your mouth, which is really weird given how much you love your mouth. <laughs> what an incredibly strange thing to say. No, you just got a lot to say. You would think you would want the microphone close by. I'm just well, saying. I have to say I have not had a great deal of difficulty being heard <laughs> over the years. So it may be that I, I feel less dependent on a microphone yeah. to make myself clear. When I was a child, my family had to hide microphones from me if I knew there was a microphone nearby. You know, like my parents would do this thing where they were these sort of beatnik artists, so they would just want to record us having the experience of life, and they would want to put the audio recorder, the tape deck, on record in, like, the kitchen when I came home from school. And they said they would have to keep it a secret from me because if I knew it was on, I would go right up to the microphone at three years old and go, that, 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 just to watch the needle jump from the sound of my voice. Yeah. What a pain in the ass I was and yeah. still am. Charming child. Oh. Very unique childhood very experience. Very unique childhood yes. experience. Okay. Very, very. Southern Sins continues on the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. Woohoo! It's volume two of our um, exploration of the murder of Bobby Kent. Kent. Bobby Kent. So in our episode last week or the previous episode, however you're finding or discovering us, we talked about an old episode of American Justice on A&E that broke down the case or the parts of it they were comfortable breaking down. Apparently. <laughs> about the murder of Bobby Kent. 
which inspired the movie we're going to discuss this week, which is the movie Bully. Well, it inspired a book yes. that inspired this movie. Did you watch the credits and make sure that it was it was based on this book? I think it we could see that. It is based on this book. Yeah. It is based on this book. In fact, I've actually done some extra research oh. around this particular topic, and we can talk about that, too, as we talk about this particular film. I love that about you. I love that you show up looking for extra credit here at the classroom that we call TDPS. Well, every now and again, I have questions that I want cleared up. Right. And... and th- and, uh, you know. You got them cleared up? I got them cleared up. Okay. I was like, okay, well, that's okay. So I'm going to give the context. This is the type of case that we actually love talking about here, I, as much as you can love talking about these things, because it calls into question the way that we, it, there's a lot of sexuality issues, sexual identity issues wrapped up in it. We and think. We think. And it calls into question the extent to which uh, people were comfortable talking about these issues as we were coming of age, which the answer is not very comfortable. And we get to look at the story that maybe they weren't comfortable telling then and see to what extent people are talking about it now. I think even at the time of the making of the movie, which was considerably later than the crime itself. Right. So... This is. I'll, I'll give the facts. Of the Are case. you and your watch having a moment? I'm Do you trying need to, to be get, alone. I'm getting my watch to shut the fuck up. Like I enjoy having the Apple Watch, and they are not sponsors of the show. Let me just tell you, um, shut the fuck up is not something we would ever say about our sponsors if we had any here at TDPS. <laughs> Um, I enjoy having a watch that will tell me my heart rate, but then I want it to be quiet. I want it to stop tinging at me. I want it to stop shooting alerts at my wrist. It somehow feels more invasive. But yes, I have shut it up. We can focus on the case at hand. I, I would also suggest it's possible to not wear it. That's mm, Let's not go that far. Let's not go that far. Because I, I really like to be able to look at I want to know my average heart rate over the span of six months. Six months from now, I don't want to see a little gap where I took the watch off because of, you know, peer pressure from my good friend, Derek Shaw Quinn. Okay. Okay. So (laughs) this is the case we're talking about. There's no peer pressure involved in having an Apple watch and knowing what your heart rate is over a period of six months. Yes. The only peer pressure involved here is in my saying, you can always take the watch off. I don't want to be free. That's the thing. I don't like being free. Okay. I, I like to feel chained to things, which is which is really the theme of this crime that's that what, we're talking about. It's what Apple wants for you. Yes, exactly. Um, so this is the deal. Yes. A group of high school dropouts, as they were called incessantly by the special— stop calling them that. Uh, yeah. I, it was a group really... of friends in South Florida. Right. Because, like, there are reasons— we're dealing with a lot of different life challenges. There are reasons people don't finish high school that are complicated. I mean, it's like calling them high school dropouts just makes it sound like they got a good invite to or a party. Or it makes these horrible people—it conflates them with people who did drop out of high mm-hmm. school for legitimate reasons. Like, I right. just—there's just—I don't—it just seems like a judgy dismissal of everybody who ever dropped out of high school— and I don't I, – I just – I prefer not. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so they were really bad people. How's that? Terrible group of, of young people for a lot of reasons, dealing with a lot of different conflicts and a lot of different life troubles. One of them – one of the young women who had left high school had left, I think, because she had also been married and had a child even though right. she was only 17 years old. Right. So there was – there were some issues that was going a lot of drug use, a lot of drug abuse in in the crowd. And uh yeah, in fact, the murder victim was kind of 
the most stellar member of the group. Right. Now, the murder victim had a reputation for being a very vicious bully, and the two men who were sort of at the center of this story, Marty and Bobby, were said to be in a really abusive relationship that may have been characterized by sexual abuse in addition to possessiveness. And so Bobby was murdered <laughs> um, as part of a conspiracy by this group of friends, but the ringleader was really said to be Marty's girlfriend, Lisa, who believed that this <clears throat> was the only way to get Marty free of Bobby. And boy, the author of the book and the makers of this movie did not, like when we did the the, the documentary last right. week, there was some question about, was Lisa really the ringleader? She says not, and mm -hmm. this has a point of view. Lisa is chapter and verse putting this crime together right. during the course of this movie. There is no doubt about it. She's absolutely the ringleader. Um, what is your history with this movie? Had you seen it before we watched it for the podcast? I honestly don't think I had. Right. I think some of the scenes from it I had encountered over time because it was so out there. Um, Brad Renfro, it was it was a sad reminder of Brad Renfro's end. He died of a heroin overdose at the age of 25. He gives an amazing performance, I thought, in this movie as Marty, who yes. is really, depending on your point of view, a victim or a, or a killer. Um, he was discovered by Joel Schumacher, I believe, and cast in The Client, which was the John Grisham adaptation when he right. was very young. He was, yeah, he was a yeah. kid from, I don't know, Memphis or someplace where the, yeah. the movie was set. So he was cast on site yeah. when they were filming the movie. And it he was remarkable. It was a hell of a performance. Yeah. And it grew into um, the beginnings of a career that never really kind of got there because he was a troubled young man who had other difficulties that yeah. ended up taking him off the field. He um, was arrested on Skid Row here in Los Angeles, and the, somebody caught a photograph of it, and it ended up on the front page of the LA Times, as I remember. It was just a very horrible, sad chapter in a very talented man's life. Um, Nick Stahl, Nick who Stahl. played uh, Bobby, also has had his own uh, difficulties. He, he has survived it, mm -hmm. um, and I hope he's doing better, but he has had some some difficulties coming after this. All of that. In fact, a lot of these, a lot of the people in this have had Troubled, really. Um, histories. Well, Michael Pitt. Michael Pitt plays uh, one of the group of the some yeah. real challenges in, yeah. in his own. Like, I think the the uh, the Phillips girl, Bijou Phillips, mm -hmm. has had some of her own. Like, I think it's an interesting parallel. Yeah. Between the cast of this and the the troubled young people who were in the movie itself. So maybe that it gave them greater insight into yeah bringing them. But they really it was. It was pretty riveting. Larry Clark, the director, were you familiar with his work at all? Not really, no. Yeah. Um, as a part of my additional research on this particular project, I actually found a really illuminating interview with him mm. about his work on this uh, particular film. That This particular movie? Yeah. Okay. Um, that kind of gave me more insight into him, but I don't know what he went on to do after this or if he went on to do anything. Um, right. But... Uh, it and and I wasn't. I don't know what the 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 kids isn't it the yes that was really his sort of sort of breakout breakout movie. yeah yeah, and that was about kids in New York City, very sort of gritty, sexually explicit, 
frank depiction of their lives. And I think that, that maybe Runaways, I'm, I, I don't mean to start lecturing about a movie I'm not familiar with, but he had a reputation as really being out there on the fringes of independent film, really being a risky, kind of audacious And I guess filmmaker. he kind of stayed there because I, as I leaf back through, I don't see anything I particularly recognize. It yeah. doesn't mean it's not great. I just, and to be fair, I'm not even sure I had seen this movie prior to our including it in the film yeah. festival. It's one of those things where I've seen enough scenes from it and enough about it mm-hmm. that it's hard for me to say absolutely I hadn't seen it before, right. but I don't think I had. So when you were coming out of the documentary, what what were your burning questions that you, what were you most curious about seeing the movie portray? I wanted clarification on the relationship between um, Bobby and Marty. That, Marty, to yeah. me, because to me, that's the story mm-hmm. and everything else revolves around that. Lisa came in and was competitive with Bobby and felt that the only way she could have Marty for herself was to kill Bobby because he was violently obsessed Mm -hmm. with Marty. I think he was in love with him in his own really twisted way. I don't know what the impact, I don't know if that was from his father or his religion or his background or from the times or none of those things have been portrayed anywhere. Mm -hmm. Although I will say the portrayal of the father-son relationship Mm. in this movie was at least disturbing. Disturbing. the nudity involved yeah. in the the sort of boundarylessness between Bobby and his father in the movie was a little off-putting, and so it was like I don't know what they were suggesting there. The um the movie, according to Clark, is very much based on the book. In right. fact, my favorite um, element of the um, of the the interview um, about the story was the the screenwriter actually quit and took his name off the project. Really? Called it Zachary something. They put up a fake name. Um, wow. Um, because um, the director, because Larry Clark, wanted to include elements from the book that were much more, again, we're only at 2001 at this right. point, so there's still a lot of that sort of homophobic. So I guess the the writer was too homophobic to include elements about their relationship the um the movie opens with um marty doing yeah. uh, phone sex work yeah um and it's clearly he's talking about i want to suck your dick or mm-hmm. whatever he's it's a pretty gay it's pretty graphically gay right. phone sex he did that yeah and the the writer did not want to put that in the movie, and it's in the book. Right. And Larry Clark said, we're putting it in, and the writer basically quit. That's incredible. Because he didn't want to portray gay people at all in this movie. So, wow, what a jerk. Uh, do you think he might have also been a gay person who was trying to say, don't link these people I to have gay, no, gay I have no community. idea. I don't know anything about yeah. this guy. It It's off-putting, whatever his choices yeah. were. You know, because that was the truth of these characters. Right. Um, there was, that, but I wanted to know that. I wanted to know that they were going to gay clubs, presenting themselves as a gay couple, yeah, and hustling um, gay people in that those contexts, which I think leads to the pimping him out, right? Sub, uh, surmise that I had mm-hmm. using him as an entrevue to have sex with other men, right? Um, I think Bobby was playing the. Um, the uh, the Marty card, yeah, um, and using Marty sexually 
And I don't know that Marty was an entirely willing participant. I think Bobby was gay. I'm not sure where Marty landed on that spectrum. He participated, but I don't think he wanted to in the way that Bobby did. And I yeah. I think that was at the, score, the core of what this conflict was. And I think that's why... I needed to find, I needed clarification because the movie is much more specific about that. Yeah. It includes all of those elements. One of the things the movie did that I found really revelatory and I think very likely was Bobby is portrayed as enjoying watching gay pornography Mm -hmm. while he's having sex with women so that he can get aroused by seeing men having sex with each other so that he can participate sexually with women, Mm -hmm. which I think is, again, kind of revelatory about where Bobby was and what he was dealing with Mm -hmm. in his own really fucked up way. There's also a scene that addresses what we talked about last week or what's known about the case, which is that they, Bobby and Marty, somehow abducted a man or coerced a man into performing sexually on camera, saying they were going to sell the video to porn shops, that they were going to blackmail the man into doing it. They show that video or a version of that video that they've made for the movie, and they show Bobby trying to sort of get one of the group mutual friends. Isn't this funny? Isn't this cool? That sort of desperate, needy need for validation that's in there. I mean, the movie was incredibly frank about these issues. I think so. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I think the point is the the book as accurate I don't know that the book is the absolute truth but this cleaves more to the book and that story than anything else that's the source for for this film and so depicting Brad Renfro is uh, depicting Bobby as goading um Marty into going on stage and dancing mm-hmm. in an underwear competition at a gay bar to attract the attention of other men is accurate to the to the extent that the book is accurate. Right, yeah. And one assumes that's going to be probably the most relevant, the most accurate depiction of what actually happened in this yeah. hideous sort of situation. But all of this forms the background to what ultimately becomes a really sickening and horrible crime. But it gives you more insight into a motive for the crime having been committed than anything that the documentary did. And I think, so the narrative we were really imprinted with last week about this case is that Lisa and Marty whipped up this group of their friends, a cousin was involved, with these stories of Bobby's abuse and got the entire group to participate very willingly and very emphatically in the murder of Bobby Kent. And so... um, there, I think, is an approach in this movie 
to show they they depict one member as being more reluctant than he was described as being in the special last week, which is the cousin Donnie. Derek and Donnie are easily confused. Derek was the self-prescribed gang member, the professional hitman. Was also a very interesting portrayal. I thought yeah. the choices around that, I assume that was, again, part of the book. But he seemed to be having a really sort of sexually ambiguous uh, kind of existence as well, surrounded by all those yeah. cute young boys who he was sleeping with, but maybe not sexually. It was yeah. very it was very unclear. Very unclear. Um, but the the individual members of the group are depicted as sort of bringing their own experiences with abuse to their anger towards Bobby, which is and not... their yeah. experiences of Bobby. Right, yeah. He's hideous to all of them. Bobby is depicted in the movie as having raped Alice, his ex-girlfriend, the girl that, that uh, Lisa brings in to try to distract Bobby away from Marty so she can have Marty. He's depicted as actually violently raping her in this movie. I don't think that was said on the special. Beat her, possibly, but the rape is not discussed. Yeah, and the, it was unclear to me if he raped Lisa or Marty or both, but there is a sequence where he comes out of the bathroom into right. the room with um, Marty and Lisa having sex and punches, throws, hits her with something, throws her out of the way and set, punches um, Marty out and says, I'm next. And it is, we then cut away. So it's not even we clear don't see who's with next. Who. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like maybe both of them. I don't know. Like it was, he was, he was a very sexually violent person. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is made much more vivid and much clearer in this movie. You you begin to see not the justification, but at least the motivation yeah. behind what seems to be an inexplicable crime. Uh, n this is a weird thing to comment on, and I don't think the Iranian community is rushing to claim Bobby Kent, but he was Iranian. His family were Iranian immigrants. That's completely erased from the movie. Because Kent is, you know, your typical... Iranian last name. I know, yeah. I was like, okay, so they changed that, I'm guessing, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. Like, it made me question, was his mom the immigrant and his father was actually from South yeah. Florida? Or I don't know. It, and maybe Kent is a traditional Iranian name, but I I, I would be so. surprised to hear that. It does that. not sound like one. I don't think so. It's, yeah. a, it's a region in, in, in England, so yes. I would think that would probably be more typical for yeah. being, of being there, but, but whatever. So um, you mentioned already the depiction of Bobby's father. I thought that was like, okay. I, I mean, there was no allusion to any kind of sexual abuse of Bobby taking place in the special, but his father is depicted as having an almost incestuous interest in Bobby, right? Now, Bobby is acknowledged as kind of being, having been the overachiever of this group in the special. He was the yes. only one who finished high school out of all of them. And did well in school. And, and well. was actually had a promising future. He was yeah. the only one of this group that did. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what do you think? Do you think that's just filmmaker liberty? That's what Bobby's abuse had to have come from somewhere, so it was the dad? Again, I'm guessing that... Um, that this is the surmise of the author of the book. The thing we didn't do, the thing that I didn't have time to and probably don't plan to, is to sit down and read this book. Oh, yeah. Like, I assume that most of those things are the surmise of the author, which means he's had more contact with the material and the players to the extent that he right. has in coming up with that. So if that's what he's positing, I think it seems like a reasonable kind of 
background explanation, like where did this come from mm-hmm. with with Bobby? I you know I was it religiously based? Mm-hmm. Was it the zealotry of the mm-hmm. denunciation of gay people? And so he was feeling like like I would think, and again this is me thinking it through as a as a writer. Um, that being presented with such contempt for gay people yeah. and knowing you were a gay person might m- create that kind of hatred mm-hmm. in you for who you are so that right. as you lash out to punish other people, you're punishing them as your surrogates. You are right. using them as a way of punishing the part of yourself that you most despise. If you're in love with Marty... If you're in love with your best friend, mm-hmm. you might abuse him as a way of punishing that part of yes. yourself that is in love with him. That seems to me to be a part of that. Whether the father was abusive in terms of religious zealotry, changing mm-hmm. his last name doesn't seem like he mm-hmm. was all that caught up in that right. identity. But maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no just masculinity. To, there just, was no going yeah. to the mosque. There was none yeah. of that was depicted as part in any of this mm-hmm. as being a part of Bobby's life. So I don't think so. But there may also have been some other kind of yeah. abuse. And the movie alludes to a much more sort of at least boundaryless um, physicality between the two. Like his Bobby's complete lack of reaction to his father coming into the room with him completely naked or Mm -hmm. his father coming home and finding him sexually, you know, either just having been sexually involved with a woman or, or another person without any real reaction to it speaks to a, a, an unusual, um, in home environment for Bobby. Something has to have been really wrong there for him to have been as awful as he was. And it may just simply be, his own personality, his father's demands on him to achieve, and combined with his own self-hatred, that may have been enough, but it seems like there may have been more to have produced the level of sexual violence and just violence. So was there ever a moment, because when I was watching the documentary last week, I was sort of thinking, is it possible that these were just two gay boys and one of them, Marty, got found out by his new girlfriend and the girlfriend shamed him into killing the other one? Or is the abuse that came from Bobby really real? Are we, you know, and I I just, because I thought you have two murderers, you have the ringleaders of a murder plot being the sole source of information about the alleged abuse. And... The problem is the family were his Bobby's staunchest defenders, and the family is usually always the staunchest defender of the accused. Sure, except of in some rare exceptions. So I thought, is there a version of this story, and it may not be the accurate one, but it is one a filmmaker could have possibly made, where they use gay shame on Marty to get him to kill this proof of a side of himself he doesn't want to accept. But I, my sense is that if you didn't detect that story, it's not there because you're really good at sniffing that stuff out. I, You know, I just didn't come – it didn't sort of emerge for me. The, the response is so – this seems more burning bad mm. to me than any other – that's a Tell a us reference. what the burning bad burning is. Burning bad, yeah. I think, was the name of a movie. Yes, Farrah um, Fawcett, right. With, about a woman killing a, – a, a woman in an abusive relationship – killing her abuser yeah. because she no longer believes there's any other way to escape him. Right, yeah. Coming first to believe that and then 
seeing murder. That seemed more logical to me right. than um, than anything else in this story. I, if he just didn't want to be involved with Bobby, he didn't have to be. Yeah. He could just leave. He wasn't trapped. Right. Yeah. Um, and that isn't what he did. He violently responded to Bobby as a way of escaping from somebody he didn't think he could escape because from of him. the abusive behavior. Because of the abusive yeah. behavior. Yeah. I, th- I think Bobby. I think Marty was not, you know, a Kenzie whatever. He wasn't mm-hmm. the perfect score. I think he probably tended. There was probably some fluidity or some right. bisexuality that allowed him to participate sexually with. At least Bobby, and in the sexual situations that I think Bobby was yeah. um, involving him in, um, but I don't think that he wanted that. I think he wanted to have a relationship mm-hmm. with Lisa. I don't think he was yeah. trapped. I don't think that was the sort of because there isn't any reason to have had a relationship with Lisa yeah. if he didn't want one. So you taught you went and you found the interview with the filmmaker Larry Clark. Uh, did you did you cover everything that he said, or was there anything in that interview you wanted to talk about? Because I'm curious about well, it. Well, the things that the thing that was interesting about the interview was in something called SF Gate, which I don't know if that's the, tr- the like an LA, LA Weekly. Yeah, it actually is. It was a web version of one of the major San Francisco newspapers. Yeah, it so was yeah, a, it was in one of the, some newsletter that they had done. And it was an interesting interview with him. He. It was really more of an address of his process. What I was looking for, the reason I read the the interview was that I wanted clarification. Was was there substantiation to um, Marty doing the phone sex work or going to the clubs or those kinds of things? And I wanted somewhere to see that. Or was that just something that was added for dramatic effect in the movie? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. It was. Yeah, it, it was, was there. straight out of the book. And the interesting note was, the screenwriter wouldn't put it in the um, the screenplay, and uh, the director yeah, insisted. That's and, yeah, it, it, yeah. In fact, it was originally the director said supposed to be a much more mainstream movie, but because he wanted to depict it in the way that it was, yeah. it became a much more indie kind of production. The yeah. studios did kept distancing themselves the more he put in, but it was. I, I surprising. There's a shot in um, in the 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 fingernail, the the manicure parlor, uh, with Allie, I believe is the character's name, Bijou Phillips, mm-hmm. and she's talking on the phone. It's when Lisa is first recruiting her to become a part of the crime, I think. And he pans down to show the bikini wax. Yeah. On the uh, sticking out at the side of her, um, right. very super short shorts. Like she's yeah. her her outfits in this are pretty sexually explicit, pretty sexy. Yeah, there's a lot of under boob and you know mm-hmm. barely covered breasts and her she her lots of nudity, the whole throughout. It was particularly r- with the women. We've we've done some dis- disturbing stuff on this podcast this was disturbing on a whole new level because the lawlessness and the anarchy and the lost sense among these kids and the and the depiction the really accurate i thought depiction of drug abuse and and tripping on acid in the middle of the day and the arcade in no way glamorizing the sort of vision quest aspects of that experience it was really a hard gritty sweaty 
dirty movie, even yeah, before was... they get to the murder, because it does, it has a very conventional structure to it, which mm-hmm. is, and I remember watching the clock on the movie and thinking, I wonder, is this movie going to address the trial? Because there was a lot of trial in the documentary last week, and I thought, this movie has not set up a viewpoint that's going to be able to introduce prosecutors and lawyers as anything other than the wah-wah-wah parents on the peanuts. Because it was yeah. so in the dirty world of these these angry, lost, fucked-up children, really. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, what Larry Clark—I was trying to think, what is Larry Clark trying to say about— young people in this movie. And I think it's more like what he's trying to say about masculinity in this movie. You know, the sort of the tortured structure that repressed sexuality can take in men. Like, as you described, I think, rather accurately earlier that, you know, I I, I was sitting there filling with gratitude. And I think I said a version of this last week because I didn't want to go see this movie at the time because everybody was talking about it like it was a gay movie. It was like the best we were going to get. It was hot. It was there weird. Was it was dark. Really very little gay about this there, movie. There was very little. But just the image of that nightclub, yes. of Brad Ripp, that was pretty gay for the time. That you was know? pretty hot stuff. Yeah. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So I've said this a bunch and I've said it again, but I am I, I watched this movie eternally grateful that I could go from it to an episode of Glamorous on Netflix, yes. which is just delightful, so changed. frothy, queer nonsense set in a ama- but, but like the crumbs we used to have to beg for, the, the shitty art house movie. They weren't all shitty, but they were almost they in They were it. mostly the, shitty. A lot was shit. It was either trauma like this and just the barest hint of something gay or cheap. They were cheap. Total frothy porn adjacent nonsense. There was no in between yeah. for a lot of it. You know, there were some exceptions. The original Stonewall movie with Fred Weller was kind of, was fascinating. You know, but you're right. They were cheap. They were made for yeah. very little money. And and yeah. even things that turned out to be great. My beautiful Laundrette was filmed for a dollar and seventy five cents yeah. in a Laundrette somewhere. Yeah, you know, like totally. It, was, it really is. I mean, it, I don't know that, but. 
it, it had and, that look. It was not yeah. this lavish film production, and you those things were all that was available. And now it's possible to watch something with all of the um, emotional and intellectual gravitas of Ugly Betty, right? Exactly, starring a gay kid. <laughs> yeah, who totally. Likes to put on a full face of makeup right. and high heels before he goes to work, which is yeah. perfectly fine. You know, like yeah. great or my. Beloved favorite Heartstopper, which I just oh yeah totally I can't wait for the sequel to that. But we're just we're in a different world now. It makes me feel like these kids aren't grateful enough. You know what I mean? Puff puff. Well, it it really is revelatory of the path that got us here. Like yeah. this these little bits of beginning to take a look behind the scenes, and I don't know what Clark's motives were for doing this. I, I guess yeah, a take on masculinity, a take on the sort of unguided, rudderless youth um, who are lost in a world that doesn't really offer them much in the way of guidance or values seems to be as much as uh, the story. Other than Bobby's father, what did you think of the depiction of the parents? Because there are parents in it. You know, one set of parents is depicted as being sort of out of touch and conventional. But then there's, um, I can't remember whose mother it is. She's sort of sympathetic and and asking them how they're doing. Lisa's. Lisa's mother, yeah. She doesn't seem like some, you know, abusive bully or or hopelessly out of touch scold. You know, she's sort of like. No, I mean, I just think it's people who, like, I I talk frequently about the the ice storm moment in, in, uh, American culture, there was a point in the 70s where we vehemently rejected a lot of the values and a lot of the beliefs of the earlier time periods in and around sexuality, in and around um, a gender identity. Like, And I mean that in its most basic terms of like what were women's roles and what were men's roles. Right. What all of those things were sort of jettisoned. Yeah. And but they weren't immediately replaced anything and there was a long with anything and there was a long period of of adjustment that I think included the Reagan years of people mm. rediscovering what it was that they felt was valuable or right. important or meaningful and it resulted in people not having a clear path which I think is really a truer way to live your life. Right. But it doesn't offer you easy answers. I think we've had a rise in our culture of people looking for easy answers mm. because we we went through a long period of history where we didn't really offer them. We were like right. we basically said there really aren't easy answers. Like yeah. and the continue to continue to look for them is a little short sighted and kind of self destructive because things are more complicated than they, they would seem on the surface. And it's fine to have a sort of um, etiquette to live by so that you know what to do on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But to believe that that is any deeper than that right. is can be um, disruptive, if not destructive influence. And I think these kids were lost in the midst of that. I, I don't, what's the time frame for the actual murders? When did the it happen? Early 90s, so 93, yeah. 94. Like so we're, we're right at the end of the Reagan years. We're beginning the Clinton years and the transition hasn't really kicked in yet because Bush was out around 92, 93, I think was that election, was the Clinton election. And yeah, I remember this was, I, I was in high school or I was about to start high school. This was totally. The music was whatever. You know what also is making me feel that way is Dairy Girls on Netflix. They're in yes, school around the time I was in very school. Very much. All the songs are like a, such a nostalgia trip. Um, but 
Yeah, it was very much. And I had the weird experience of going from a very permissive uh, liberal environment in San Francisco around this time to being dropped in uptown New Orleans, which actually is a fairly socially conservative place, or it was at the time. So I was the transition was muted because I was surrounded by Bush voters. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> it didn't really, the Clinton years were unfolding outside of the bubble that we appeared to live in, in the garden district of new Orleans. So thank goodness he stopped by the house. Absolutely. <laughs> so we knew he was president, <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was a, a really disturbing time, but I remember seeking out the documentary that we discussed last week around that time. Cause I thought this is one of the only gay stories people are talking about in the, in the media in this way, the unconventional, unexpected gayness in an environment you don't expect to find it, which is with a bodybuilder in a Florida suburb. You know what I mean? Um, so that I, I don't know. It was interesting for that reason, but I think you're but right. But even then, you had to be able to see it for yourself because yes. they didn't put a name on it, and they were not depicted as a gay couple, or it, it was not. It was not necessarily said this is gay, yeah. but if you knew, you knew. If you could right. look at it and go, oh, well, yeah, if they're out at a bar picking up other couples and he's getting up and dancing in a wet underwear contest, then, yeah, this is pretty gay. You had to learn to read the codes. Right. You had to learn to read the codes. But I was fascinated about what you said about coming out of an era that didn't give you any easy answers. It reminded me of a movie that you and I actually watched a few years ago that we both liked and really wanted to do better, but it was a it was an also-ran at the Oscar season. It was called 20th Century Women. Oh, with Annette Benning. Yes. And there's a moment because it was about it was really about the end of the Carter era and the beginning of the Reagan era. It was set in that time, but it was a young man's reflection on his mother and who she had been for him during that period. And they watch the crisis and confidence speech that a lot of people said wrecked Jimmy Carter's presidency because he told them that. He basically told them the truth, or he told, attempted to tell America what he believed to be the truth about there not being easy answers and that we had to have faith that things were going to be worked out, and it was a difficult period, and everyone just attacked him. And in that scene, when they all watch it, Annette Benning is kind of his lone defender because she can accept that the answers aren't going to be easy and that right. there are periods like this. And everyone's like, no, we need this fixed. We need it. And I don't, I was born during that period and I don't remember it, but it was apparently a very difficult time. The oil crisis and the hostage crisis and all that sort of stuff were happening and people wanted answers. And Reagan lied to everyone and said there yeah. were easy answers. Yes, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. it's all going to be great. And he yeah. just did more to damage the country than any person ever has. Like yeah. the the crisis, the debt crisis that we're in now, despite everybody's belief, actually came from him. Yeah. Like we were never in debt like that until the Reagan years because if you stop paying your taxes, you can't pay your bills. And that's when the debts really start going. And that's what he told everybody. We can have absolutely everything you want and not pay for it. Yeah. Which is simply not true, but it sounds great. And that's yeah. what people want to hear. That's the kind of easy answers that I think we're still fighting against. People right. still want things to be easier than than they really are. Mm -hmm. um, and if they, you know, if you try and tell them the truth about it, they get pretty upset or, you know, they vote for the person who's going to lie to them. And we don't seem to be able to get to a place where people are smart enough to tell a liar. I mean, they just elected that we just recovered. We're still recovering from having a con artist Literal elected president. con artist. Absolutely yes. lied about Absolutely everything. everything. He lies about good morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't trust him if he said that. He lies yeah. about absolutely everything. He's a pathological liar. Yeah. And 
But he's telling if he's telling people what they want to hear, well, then that's great. But if that's all you want, then you're going to really wind up in crisis in a hurry. Yeah. You know, and a million people are going to unnecessarily die from an illness because, you know, just uh, inject bleach or mm-hmm. take um, uh, drugs that aren't prescribed yeah. for this and have no effect on it or whatever else um, that fool said. But it, yeah. it is endemic of it is it is less an indictment of him than it is of us right. that we want those kind of that we're willing to take those kind of ridiculous outrageous lies as fact mm-hmm. because it's what we want to hear right rather than to actually deal with the problems that we're actually having well and the most toxic and i think dangerous thing about that belief system is that when someone proffers that kind of lies and then is questioned on how the why the why the lies aren't aren't manifesting in our reality, they blame a victim group. They say it's because these people are standing in your way. It's because the immigrants are fucking it up for everybody else. That's why. It's because that it's because of them. They they find an other. And and it's just at least. It's, yeah. But it's really to me just another easy answer. It's just another lie yeah. to cover up for something that you're not actually dealing with the real truth. The the border crisis in this country is actually happening in Honduras and Costa Rica mm-hmm. and the places that all of those people are coming from, but there's no coverage of what the crisis is there. Right. The crisis is all about the border, which has, which is the end, not the beginning of the problem. Like right. if, you, if you're not willing to actually address the actual problem, mm-hmm. which is the economic, dire economic circumstances and the gang violence and whatever else in the countries where the immigrants are coming from, then you're not going to fix the problem. Right. Yeah. So all of this as it relates to this story of the murder of Bobby Kent, I mean, I think that what we're saying is that the sort of structureless, transitional, cultural environment in which these young people lived was a breeding ground for this sort of They were lost in this sea of Reagan's lies. Like they were been told that all you have to do is look good and, you know, sit in the right place and you'll get all your dreams will come true. And that wasn't happening. Yeah. They didn't know what to do. And they were trying to do the things that they believed were happening. They were trying to live the lie and it wasn't working out. And so they were lost. They were. Yeah. And they didn't have a clear path to pursue. Yeah. Very disturbing case. Very disturbing story. Well, I, the disturbing part of the story to me is that this seemed like the best idea. Yeah. Like, how does this group of people wind up in a place where this seems like the best idea? And I think the thing that was the most interesting to me about the story is the two strong personalities that really were driving this crisis, Bobby mm-hmm. and Lisa. Yeah. These were two very strong personalities, and it was that conflict that played out in this. Everybody else was just sort of along for the ride because they didn't have a better solution. They didn't have any solution, and they didn't have anything better to do, so they did this. Well, the inability of any of them, and this was in the documentary last week too, to perceive that having participated in this conspiracy made them guilty of the murder, that they, they couldn't connect the conspiracy to get Bobby out there in the dark with the knife wounds. They were like, if I didn't inflict a knife, wound. I shouldn't be guilty. I'm not responsible. It's like, you were there. You didn't speak up. You didn't act like you had a voice. You didn't act like you had a choice. It's that's... And maybe they didn't know they did. Yeah. 
I don't know. It right. was it was really these were some really lost people. I I don't know how else you come to such a bad decision. And I mean, I think there there are also a lot of people involved in this. This is the most perpetrators I think we've ever discussed in a case. And they seven. And we don't we haven't even in the movie or in the documentary was there space for all of their accounts to be depicted in full. So. I don't know if the book has all of their stories in it or not, but I would be fascinated to see what Derek has to say about this, the supposed gang leader. I would be fascinated to hear their opinions of each other because it is, as the author points out in the documentary, it is about a group dynamic. And what creates these group dynamics is really scary. I think it's And I think it's scary from the point of view, it's like when we talk about juries that convict people on the basis of something bigoted and biased and superficial. He watched porn on the internet, so we're going to send him away. To, she sang this yeah. at a karaoke right. night. When, but a group dynamic like this, the way it can develop, the way it can target a victim, I think it's maybe why I was initially more suspicious of whether or not Bobby was a bully or not, because g- groups of people that gang up like this are usually bullying, you know, but... There seems to be compelling evidence that he created this. Well, and I think there's compelling evidence that Lisa was a bully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That she was, and this was her way of going up against the other bully in yeah. this particular story. Those two strong personalities, this was the way that that got decided. Yeah. Because she wasn't physically his equal. Right. This yeah. was the only way that she could defeat him. This is a similar thread to what we you brought up when we talked about the story of Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate yes. a few episodes ago. You really believed they that were her weapon. Carol used Charles Starkweather as as the weapon. And if you're if you're not familiar, that's a couple episodes back, but that is the story that inspired Natural Born Killers and inspired a movie called Badlands, which we did discuss on the podcast. It is interesting how people use other people as weapons. It's it's a fascinating from a literary perspective because to be you can go inside the head of a character who is doing that and you can see the calculations in a way if you have access if you can depict their interior monologue you know right. where their words and their thoughts don't match up. But, but manipulating somebody into yeah. bad behavior is a fascinating. It's almost hard for me to con- conceive of because. I have a pretty strong personality and a little kind of, pretty strong. Kind of, you know, very strong. Pretty independent about the choices. Very that I make. independent, absolutely. Um, so it's it is challenging for me to understand somebody's inability to stand up to a stronger yeah. personality and to feel bowled over by it. I, I, but it it very much seems to be the case. So it's probably intellectual, probably interesting at an intellectual and psychological level, mm-hmm. um, as well as from a literary one because. It does fascinate me, that notion that you really, like, somebody else convinced you to do something this horrible because that's what happened in this story. Right. All of those people, she convinced all of those people to do this horrible thing. She didn't even do it. Yeah, Physically. She just convinced them all, gave them all their roles, and then set them all in motion Mm -hmm. and defeated her enemy. Yeah. Because... While the rest of them hated him, he was her enemy. She wanted Marty, and he wanted Marty, and that was the fight. Yeah. So, So. next week, Southern Sins continues continues on the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. 
with a case, and it's one of those, I can't believe we have gone almost 200 episodes without discussing this case, but we're doing the story of the West Memphis Three. So it's a little further west, but it's still in Arkansas, and I guess yes. almost in Tennessee, so the we're west still in the south. Memphis Three, we're going to be discussing for the True Crime TV Club. This is the first half of the pairing, the West Memphis Three and ID Murder Mystery, which is multiple episodes. It's available on Discovery+. Plus. And then we will discuss the movie starring Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth, Devil's Knot. So those will that will be our next pairing here at TDPS very with Christopher Southern, and Eric. Very, very sinful. Were you were you before we did this, were you remotely familiar with the documentaries about the the West Memphis Three? Because this was sort of my, the beginning of the true crime documentary genre for me. It kind of, I, it kind of was for the world. Yeah, I think. And yes, I had watched all of the HBO. I think there were three of them. Oh, I didn't know you movies. Them. Oh, yes, yeah. I was very much intrigued yeah. by this um, early on. So yeah, it was in, it was interesting to come back to it. And it is. It, you're right. It's amazing that we haven't ever. That this hasn't come up before now. But it has. And now it's here. It will be the next installment of Southern Sins. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.